Our second reading this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of God. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we continue our series of sermons through the Acts of the Apostles. We have finally left behind the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church. And we're entering into now what we might think of as the normal ministry of the apostles, if anything the apostles did could be called normal. And right from the get-go, we run into this jaw-dropping miracle, the healing of a man who had been lame since birth. Now, if you think about it for a minute... This is an extraordinary healing because it is not the restoration of health that has been lost, but the creation of health that never existed. Last summer, I had an injury to my leg which caused it to be lame, a muscle tore. And that meant that my leg couldn't do things that it used to be able to do. Now, I was healed by a combination of three factors. Number one, by a surgeon who stitched together the different parts that had been torn apart. And number two, by my body forming scar tissue that glued all that stuff together. And then number three, by uh, my physical therapist who forced me to work my muscles in a way that allowed them to regain their lost strength. I can now walk relatively normally. That's a kind of healing that we all understand the restoration of health that has been lost by putting things back the way they were before the injury or before the disease. God knit us together in our mother's wombs, and so he can knit us together after an injury or after a sickness as well. But in the case of this man that Peter healed, he had never walked. He didn't have the muscles that he needed to walk. He didn't know how to walk. All of those connections that exist between your brain and your muscles that help you keep your balance and help you keep moving forward, this man had no experience regarding any of that. 
Indeed, we don't even know if all of the parts of his leg fit together the way that they were supposed to. So when this man was healed of lameness, he wasn't restored to some prior condition that he had once enjoyed. Instead, he was given an entirely new state of being. This is more like creation than restoration, and that should blow our minds. It certainly blew the minds of those who had seen the miracle. Scripture tells us that they were filled with wonder and amazement. Now you will recall that the Acts of the Apostles is the continuation of the Gospel of Luke. Acts and Luke are volume uh, 1 and volume 2 of a single work by a single author. And in the Gospel of Luke, we are accustomed to witnessing the extraordinary miracles of Jesus. Cleansing lepers, restoring a man with a withered hand, raising a widow's son, calming a storm on the sea, casting out demons, feeding 5,000. The power, the divinity, the godness of Jesus crackles in the air all around him like lightning from a supercharged orb. Now maybe we take those things for granted. You know, because, well, Jesus is Jesus, and that's what you expect him to do. Ho-hum, Jesus performing another miracle. Tell me something new. Tell me something I didn't already know. It's a mistake, of course, to dull our senses to manifestations of the divine. Those who have been confronted by the divinity of Jesus, by the otherness of Jesus, they either worshipped him as God... Or they rejected him as a threat to their own rule in this life. But the dumbest thing that we could do is to dull ourselves to the surpassing power and the surpassing strangeness of Jesus. He was doing things that just did not make any sense. Maybe we're a little too used to that. But now that we're in the Acts of the Apostles, we make a jump. In the move from the Gospel of Luke to the Acts of the Apostles, we're no longer talking about the second person of the Trinity doing miracles and blowing minds. In the Acts of the Apostles, we're now dealing with regular guys, with fishermen and tax collectors. And guess what? These regular guys, too, they also do miracles, and they'll also blow your mind. Peter and John, they go to the temple to pray. It's three in the afternoon. And on the steps of the temple is a lame beggar. We don't know his name, but we know his identity. He's the lame beggar. That's his permanent condition. He's always been lame. Everybody knows him. He's always carried to the same place every day. No one's surprised to see him. The lame beggar, that's his career. He makes his living by asking religious people for alms, for money that's given as an act of religious devotion. The law of Moses requires us to give alms. And so a person need only sit on the steps of the temple and in the course of the day, enough money would come in to keep body and soul together. Peter and John meet the lame beggar. I wish we knew his name. And the beggar calls out, as beggars do, asking for money. He isn't looking at anyone. He's just making his repeated appeal for money over and over again. No 
doubt, his eyes downcast in modesty and in shame. But Peter says directly to this man, look at us. Look at me and my buddy John. Now, if you've ever given money to beggars, you may have noticed that they often have their eyes on your hands and not on your face. And it is rare that words are exchanged between a beggar and his patron. We all understand the social customs surrounding begging. We all understand the relationship between donor and recipient. There is a gulf between the two. A gulf that doesn't require a meeting of eyes. A gulf that doesn't require a conversation. Because the beggar is a damaged person. Because the beggar is outside the normal functioning of society. Because the beggar has nothing to offer. He receives, but he doesn't give. Which causes the beggar to be diminished as a man, even as he receives a boon. Because when you receive but don't give, you announce that you're less. And you admit that you're dependent. It's okay To receive and not give if you're a child. Because that's the natural order of things. But for an adult to receive but not give diminishes that person. The food feeds their body, but it starves their spirit. What fills their stomach empties their dignity. So Peter interrupts the socially understood exchange between a beggar and a patron by saying, look at us. Even more than words, our eyes, when they look, connect us, one human to another. When we look at each other eye to eye, we see the other person and we also expose ourselves. I believe that's how we should be living all of the time, in real relationships, eye to eye. Now notice that that is the opposite of living behind mirrored sunglasses or tinted windows, which allow us to see without being seen. Look at us, Peter says to the social outcast, to the beggar. And with those words, Peter interrupts the social convention with an authentic and a revealing encounter. Look at us. And the man looks, no doubt he's surprised. Maybe Peter and John are going to give him a substantial gift, he's thinking. Maybe not just the customary pennies. A couple of doors down from my house, there's a halfway house for um, mentally ill people. And one of the ladies who lives there, she weighs about 400 pounds. And she often stands on the corner across from my house in her bathroom slippers, flagging down passing cars to ask them for money, which is an unusual sight in the suburbs. So the cars usually do stop. Now, this woman is a ward of the state. She has housing. She has food. She has medical care. She's not suffering in that way, but... What she wants is money for cigarettes, which they don't give her at the halfway house. And so she stands on the corner and she asks for money for the cigarettes. A couple of weeks ago, 
I was talking with a delivery man who had come uh, to my house, uh, and my neighbor, the 400-pound lady, is standing on the corner at, at the time, and he says to me, what's, what's up with her? And I say, oh, she lives at the halfway house down, down the street, and she's looking for cigarette money. And he laughed, and he said, well, I offered her some money, but she said, that's not enough. Now, George Henley was in the earlier service this morning, and I told this story, and he came to me after the service. Says, I, she said the same thing to me. And, but to, to, to him, she wanted cigarettes and a Mountain Dew, and he only had enough money for the Mountain Dew. So, I don't know. So when Peter insists that the lame beggar looks at him, maybe the beggar thought that he was in for a good handout. Maybe enough to get this, both the cigarettes and the Mountain Dew. But instead he learns that Peter and John, in fact, are broke. They don't have any money. I have no silver or gold, but what I have I will give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then this crazy miracle happens. It's mind-bending. It's physics-defying. It's God-revealing. This man receives what he's never had before. Now what I want you to notice in this exchange is, is that Peter uses this phrase, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter is not acting on his own behalf. Peter isn't acting in his own power. This becomes clearer when Peter and John are beset by a crowd of people who come running after them, following the miracle. They've gone into the temple. They're there in Solomon's portico, which is apparently where uh, the early church would gather regularly for worship. And what we hear is that all the people utterly astonished, ran together to Peter and John, and Peter says to them, why do you stare at us? As though by our power or piety we made him walk? It's no wonder that they're staring at Peter and John. What happened was eye-popping and jaw Dropping, but as it turns out, it wasn't Peter or John who were responsible for the miracle. It was the name of Jesus. Or more precisely, it was faith in the name of Jesus. Verse 16 says, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. The miracle is strange. Something strange is going on. There is a transfer of power here from Jesus Christ to the next generation. By means of faith. In the the Gospel of Luke, Jesus regularly performed great miracles. Or, actually, it's sometimes the faith that Jesus inspires that performs the great miracle. You remember the story of Jesus healing the ten lepers. Only one of them returns to thank Jesus. Horrible story in some way. Jesus says to the one who returns him, he, he's down in the dust at Jesus' feet thanking Jesus for what he's done. And Jesus says to him, rise and go your way. Your faith 
has made you well. Now, I can't pretend to understand the relationship between Jesus and faith in Jesus or the faith of Jesus. But what we see with Peter and John on the temple steps is clearly that this power of Jesus, the power of the faith in Jesus, is going from one generation to the next. Jesus is gone. He's no longer on the earth. He's in heaven. But Peter and John invoke his name, and then this crazy thing happens. And by the way, Jesus warned his disciples that this was going to happen. In John chapter 14, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Works is code here for miracles. Because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now imagine Jesus saying to you, Hey, you know, I've done some really great things. You've seen my great miracles. But guess what? You're going to do more than I did. Peter takes... Jesus at his word. And a man who had never walked, walks. So what does this all mean? What's this all about? Well, would you believe me if I told you that this is all about Doug Nolan? Today we're going to install Brother Doug Nolan as a ruling elder in this congregation, he has been ordained in the past. He has served a number of times on the session. He has been called back up and has re-enlisted. Now, we believe that God calls individuals to specific places and roles within the body of Christ. And those individuals who were called to serve the body of Christ, like Peter and John, they do not act in their own power or authority or piety. They act in the name of Jesus. And there's power in that name. Jesus said that his disciples would do greater things than he did. And today the church of Jesus Christ is doing greater works than Jesus did while he was walking around in the dust of Palestine. Well, for the simple reason that there are two billion of us now, that's a lot of people to get the work of God done in the name of Jesus Christ. Our Old Testament reading is the call narrative of Isaiah, this is the account of the encounter between Isaiah, who's not yet a prophet, and Almighty God. And this encounter results in Isaiah becoming a prophet, becoming a spokesperson of God. And notice Isaiah's reaction to the encounter. Woe is me! By the way, this is the appropriate response if the nominating committee ever comes to you. Woe is me! I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Isaiah is in the presence of Almighty God and he's scared to death because he knows that he, Isaiah, is not holy. He knows that he's full of sin. He knows that he's corrupt. He knows that an unholy person in the presence of Holy God is in a very dangerous position. And so he cries out, woe is me, I am lost. 
Now this is the man who becomes one of the most important prophets of Israel. And maybe you're wondering what in the world God is doing calling an unclean man to be his prophet. Maybe God should call a holy man to be his prophet. Maybe God should call someone with clean lips to speak for him. That makes more sense, doesn't it? But then the question is, where's God going to find that man? That holy man. That man with the clean lips. Especially in light of what the Bible says about humans. All we like sheep have gone astray. All we have turned, every one, to his own way. Or the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Or all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So where will God find his holy man? Where is the individual with the clean lips? If God is going to call anyone into service, he must call someone who is fallen and sinful. There is no other choice. But while we are all fallen, we are not all the same. Because there are fallen people who know they are fallen, and there are fallen people who don't know that they're fallen, and there's a very big difference between those two kinds of people. Last week I was watching the presidential debates from Nevada. Anybody watch that? Very interesting. They were, it was good. It was a good show, actually. <clears throat> Kept me up very late that night. Mia was watching it with me. I'm trying to introduce her to American democracy. All of the candidates that night were very feisty. Each candidate was busy slinging mud and insulting all of the other candidates. As if they were all a bunch of racists and misogynists and murderers. And then each candidate in turn was busy defending themselves as if they were the lone reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Each one of them was wise in their own eyes. Each one of them was righteous in their own eyes. Well, there was one exception. The senator from Minnesota admitted that she didn't know the name of the president of Mexico. And she suggested that maybe humility, the willingness to admit error, might be a character trait that we'd want in a president. You see, there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who are fallen and cannot admit the fact. And those who are fallen and can, by the grace of God, admit the fact. Now here's a crazy inversion. What allows us to admit that we are sinful fallen people is the fact that we have been saved from our sins and fallenness. What allows us to admit that we're fallen, fallible human beings is having been grasped by the power of the gospel. 
The gospel tells us that we are not saved by our own goodness, that we are not saved by our own holiness or our own righteousness, but rather that we are saved by the righteousness of Christ, which we receive through faith. And once we understand that and grasp that and receive that and believe that, then we are finally able, unlike most of the presidential candidates that I heard this past week, then we are finally able to admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And only then do we have a chance with God. Only then do we have a shot at eternal life. Isaiah knew he wasn't a righteous man. And it was precisely that knowledge that made him useful to God. Everyone who is called to special service in the body of Christ is called to a position they are not qualified for. They are called to perform wonders that they cannot do. But everyone who is called to special service in the body of Christ, and that includes the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John, And that includes Elder Doug Nolan. All of these people are filled with the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit will act through them to accomplish the purpose and the will of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Now I've seen some bad elders. People convinced of their... Whoops. People convinced of their own righteousness... People convinced of their entitlement to rule. I've met elders like that. And I've also seen some great elders. People convinced of their own sinfulness. People convinced of their desperate need for Christ. I'm here to tell you that Doug Nolan is a man of unclean lips. And he lives with a people of unclean lips. And I'm also here to tell you that Jesus Christ of Nazareth will accomplish through Doug Nolan astounding things. The wonders that Doug Nolan will do while he serves this church on the session will not be done in his own power and his own piety. They will be done by the name of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. I've seen it happen before. I know it will happen again. To the glory of God. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father God.